SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 60 with guest Adam Mechanic. Welcome. Our guest today is Adam Mechanic. Uh, Adam is a SQL Server MVP based in Boston in the USA. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Greg. Listen, we have had Adam on the show, and I'll put in the show notes a link to the earlier show where we had Adam there, so it had details of his background and how he came to be involved with the product. But what I'll get you to do, Adam, is just tell us what things you've been primarily working on over the last couple of years. So I have started kind of specializing a bit in financial services. Um, I'm mm-hmm. working on, I've been doing data warehousing almost to the exclusion of all else. So, well, to the exclusion of OLTP, I guess, for yep. the, the past uh, maybe seven years or so. I don't really mm-hmm. touch OLTP anymore. And uh, so basically been working on data warehouses and started really focusing in on financial services data warehouses. I decided that, um, Maybe be interesting to be not just a SQL Server expert, but also have a little bit of domain expertise. To domain bring, knowledge as well. Yeah. To bring along. So, uh, there's a, what 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 has made you end up doing more data warehouse work rather than OLTP work? I've always really enjoyed performance tuning, and mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing to me that's more satisfying than taking a 12-hour query and making it run in 30 seconds. So yep. uh, I get to do that all day long with data warehouses. Uh, OLT, mm-hmm. on, the OLT, on the OLTP side, all the performance tuning is kind of more micro-tuning and concurrency management, things like that. There's not really big wins. Um, you, know, you don't get to take like a huge lumbering query and fight with it. And that's what I really, yeah. really love to do uh, on the data warehouse mm-hmm. side. I just think uh, yeah. it's really interesting. I, I, find, I find that in the OLTP side, um, in fact, the biggest gains I tend to get is more working with getting people to change the application or change or looking at the bigger picture. In fact, I was at a site yesterday and I sort of, you know, you, you, I see a lot of people doing performance tuning work and they're sort of like, how do I get this little query to run 10% or 50% faster? But the issue is more like why are you doing that whole process in the first place? And, uh, you know, those sort of discussions require a higher level um, discussion. But for me, that's usually where the biggest benefits come from. Right, right. So, and it's fun to be able to play with big hardware and uh, mm. big sets of data, really kind of push systems to their limits. That's what I really enjoy doing. So, it's been fun. Yeah. And it's interesting. So, I noticed that a lot of the um, materials or sessions you've been doing over the last year or so, we mentioned, have been in around parallelism. And I suppose in data warehouses, you have more opportunity probably to take advantage of that. I'm, I'm thinking that in most OLTP systems I work on, while the queries do tend to be parallelized fairly well, uh, basically there's a natural parallelism with a large number of users using the system anyway. On OLTP systems? I'm sorry? Yes. I broke up a little bit. Um, yeah. 
I guess I wouldn't really refer to that as parallelism, but uh... no, I, I suppose I'm <laughs> just getting it from the point of view of the machine. It's not like you you've got sort of uh, threads sitting there idle and so on, sort of because there's always something else for them to be doing all the time. But in a lot of the data warehouse uh, things, we do tend to get these sort of larger queries that run for long periods of time. Right, right, right. So I mean, I think in a the whole point of parallelism is to take a large set of data, break it up into lots and lots of smaller chunks, and make it run faster by running it across lots and lots of cores. So it's a pretty natural fit. Most data warehouse servers are fairly beefy. Uh, They have big disk systems that can handle lots and lots of concurrent requests, concurrent I.O. requests, and uh, they have lots of CPU power, they have lots of memory, and they don't have a lot of queries running at any given time. So each query can afford to use a decent amount of uh, the resources available. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's the point I was getting at is that in most of the old TP systems I see there are just so many things going on at once that it, it's not like the system sitting there idle um, and just using one thread or something to execute. You know, may, from a point of view of one user it might be, but overall the system's still kind of busy. But in the data warehouse ones, yeah, invariably there are not huge numbers of queries going on, um, but they are often yeah very, very heavy type queries. Yes. Now, absolutely. what does that what does that mean I mean, in some... terms of? Uh, I was going to say, what does that mean in terms of di- disk uh, subsystems, though? Because again, a lot of these systems still tend to be I/O bound, and uh, if it's it's great to break it up into a whole lot of things going on at once, but I suppose the first starting point is the I/O subsystem has to be able to deal with that. I don't really agree with you uh, when you say that. Oh, ah, okay, good. <laughs> that a lot of the systems are still I/O bound. That's not what I'm seeing. Um, I think. Mm, interesting. That, uh, I think that. Disk systems in general have come a long, long way in the past five, maybe maybe ten years. I'd say more like five years than ten years. But yep. um, disks have gotten a lot faster. Disks have gotten a lot cheaper. Um, disk systems, including high-end SANS, uh, have gotten a lot cheaper. And uh, SANS now have a lot more cash than they ever had before. Yes. Uh, we have these onboard SSD products now that we never had before. Yep. Those are actually finally starting to come down in price a bit to where they're getting fairly realistic. Um, memory has gotten a lot cheaper, and we have a lot more of it. It's now yep. a lot more common to see boxes with you know up to a terabyte of RAM. I mean, even seven, eight years ago, a terabyte of RAM would have been unimaginable. Today, yep. today you know, it's still a lot of RAM, but it's, you don't really even raise your eyebrow when you hear about it. Uh, no, it, actually, that's interesting, too, because one of the... Uh, white papers I was a reviewer on a little while ago there was a hardware sizing guide for the tabular data model and, uh, and, and analysis services and in fact it was interesting that one of the questions they raised was would it be unreasonable to suggest a terabyte of memory as a starting point as a starting point see there you go <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting now, I, I know a lot of people don't have a terabyte still uh, Indeed. But, but I and I, I don't think it's a starting point but I don't think it's nearly out of reach any longer. Um, yeah. I recently priced some machines which were fairly large. Um, I won't give the manufacturer, but uh, yep. they had uh, what they have? 40 cores, uh, 80 threads. No, I'm sorry, 80 cores, so 160 yep. threads, um, and a terabyte of RAM, and they were uh, less than $100,000 US, which is mm. not a lot for that kind of 
Yeah, for that level of performance. Yeah, I must admit, most of the machines I still see are still tend to be I/O bound. So it's interesting that you are getting to work with those. Now and, you're and, working more on OLTP, though, right? Or yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's the case. And but even so, uh, quite, it's interesting that the number of memory sockets uh, for a start is increasing. So even uh, some of the common servers that I'm seeing around the place tend to at least now have sort of 24 memory sockets and so on. And uh, but uh, again, that's getting up over time, and so yeah, I, I think um, in, obviously, increasingly, the direction of all of these products is towards heavy use of memory, anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and that's kind of where things are headed, anyway. Um, I mean, they just announced. I, I'm allowed to talk about it now. Uh, in the next version of SQL Server, they're going to have this. Um, you're going to be able to. It's kind of like Oracle actually has had this feature for a long time called Flash Cache. Yeah, familiar with that one. And what yes, you, indeed. What you can do is take a an onboard uh, SSD and tell Oracle, uh, I want you to use this on the server uh, as a kind of local cache for the buffer, for the buffer yep. pool. And um, a lot of people have been clamoring for that in SQL Server for quite a while, and they're finally yep. introducing. I don't know what they're going to call it, the feature, but it's kind of the same idea uh, in SQL Server 2014. So. That should yeah. be um, a really good way for people to also take advantage of all these new technologies and un-IO bind their servers. Mm. Yeah, actually, today is the day that the product guides and things have uh, finally been published for CTP1 for SQL <laughs> Server 2014. So, yeah, I th- I'm sure that those sort of names and things will appear in that. So if people haven't had a look at that, it would probably be good to pop up the site and have a look at the product guides for those. Uh, and, again, I'll put a link in the show notes to the product guide. for. But the CTP is not CT- out yet, right? No, the CTP is uh, not quite yet, but... Uh, but I think people should expect to see that mighty soon. All right. I'll look forward to that myself. Uh, I got to play with it a little bit at uh, the TechEd show. Uh, TechEd North America was two weeks ago. And yep. I, um, I got to play with the CTP there on a VM. Very, very slow VM. But it was kind of cool to try out some of the new features. The clustered column store is something I'm fairly... Yeah, so I suppose maybe, uh, given the fact that this is announced now, we should just momentarily divert. What what are the things that you're most looking forward to? Uh, Again, the cluster column store for me is the thing that uh, I think has the potential, or the most potential, to be a game changer. Yes, Um, I I tend to agree. Because we had the column store index introduced in the previous version, and for many people I noticed would not have used that as as yet. But the key thing was that it added a non-clustered index in a highly compressed form. But the biggest issue was that the table became read-only. And so I find that uh, while the column store index is in place, now I find that loading that is still possible, but it requires a fair bit of use of partitioning and switching in and out of partitions and so on. And it's, a, it's kind of messy where... It sounds like the one in the uh, the upcoming version should just simply eliminate that, plus the fact we don't have to store the original copy of the data in the uncompressed form either. Well, yeah, the uh, the not the non-clustered column store that's in SQL Server 2012. Uh, for me, the big limitation wasn't the fact that it wasn't writable, uh, but more the fact that it's very hard to get it to use uh, in the query plan. There's this thing called batch mode, yes, and all the performance that you're going to get out of it, the performance gains come from this batch mode working. And getting yep. it to use that batch mode in SQL Server 2012 was very, very difficult, uh, especially yep. if you had some uncompressed data alongside. Uh, the Supposedly in 2014, it's going to become much easier. I did get to play with to it. To do that. 
Uh, yeah. Actually, that's another one I'll put a link to in the show notes. Is there? There's. Uh, I think it was from the SQL Cat team, uh, but there is one white paper that sort of describes when using the existing column store indexes, uh, the, the, the query patterns that lend themselves uh, to batch mode and not. Right. So I played with it for about two hours at TechEd uh, on this VM, and it was interesting. It compressed really well, so that was cool. Yep. Uh, it did speed up certain queries that I ran, but I was very disappointed in a few things, I have to be honest. Uh, your mm-hmm. table, for example, uh, can have no foreign keys. If it has yep. if it has the cluster column store index, it can have no triggers. Uh, I'm not sure about check constraints, but I don't believe you can have those either. Uh, so mm-hmm. basically, data integrity, forget about it. <laughs> yep. Uh, and no primary key either, because your only index that you can have on the table is the cluster column store index. Yeah. So it's basically like you can have it fast and bad data, uh, potentially. I mean, as I always, I like to tell people that. Uh, if you don't have constraints, you will violate the constraints you're missing. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, in in the case of foreign key constraints, it's actually an interesting discussion always as to whether data warehouses should have them or not. And uh, again, even yesterday, the site I went to, the they just said, oh, we just don't have them. And I say, why? And they say, well... You know, performance, and I will say, well, have you tried it? Uh, is is the first question. And what I find in most sites is that there might there might in in uh, really bigger situations there might be one sort of scenario where you can't actually have one uh, or two. But the thing is that there's no, you know, you just don't need to have them across the board. Um, a lot of the things that people argue, they always, you know, I hear the app does that, or I hear. You know all these sorts of words, or the system it came from already had integrity and so on. But but yeah, they never think about what if the ETL process has a bug or you know it, yeah. And every site I go into, when they say it'll be right and it doesn't need to be there, when I check the data, it's usually wrong. No, no. Every single time I've seen a missing constraint, every single time yep. over my entire career, there's data in there that's not supposed to be in there. Every single time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yep. like. It's a, it finds a way in, and so yeah. really my role is trust no one and always put constraints, and it, <laughs> it doesn't hurt performance that much. It's actually – I'd much rather have correct data and take a small exactly. performance hit. And if there is, and really with foreign keys, they can actually benefit performance too. Yes, exactly. Uh, they can help the yeah. query optimizer do a better job, so it's really nonsensical for these people to not include those. Yeah, and uh, every time I then uncover bad data, I always hear a story about, ah, oh, yes, that's right, we had that bug a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's always a story, but yeah, it it invariably is wrong. Yep. Or I'll see uh, th- I'll see a lot of code every time. There's kind of not enough constraints. Um, the kind of code smell that I'll look for, well or sniff for, I guess, will be yep. um, there'll be a lot of top ones in subqueries. And a lot of yes. select distinct use uh, all over the code. Yep. And that's how you can kind of tell that you have a little problem. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And so, yeah, they're, they're expecting a value to be there, but occasionally there's multiples, so they're having to do a select distinct or something. to yeah, Or a top nasty. one, yeah. Exactly. Or a top one, yeah. Let, let me find the first one that matches this thing that should only be one. Yeah. And uh, No, it's good. So, so the clustered column store index you're looking forward to, the um, – as it – do you have a – if you've played around with them at all, have you got a feeling for the level of compression you're seeing? Uh, again, I only played around with it for like two hours at TechEd on a really slow VM. Yep. 
so I didn't get to do a whole wide variety of things, but um, mm. I'll just say it looked pretty good. I, I don't remember the number, but I was I was pleased. Yeah. Um, I can say that well, I messed with the non-cluster column store, and I think I was seeing like eighty percent on some data sets or. Yeah, like that. That, that's that's pretty much most uh, thinking. Uh, it's very, very much the same engine as in the tabular data model, and pretty much all the time we, we tend to see somewhere between 7 and 10 times uh, compression is quite routine. Uh, but I do see scenarios where it, it literally ends up being, you know, a hundredth or a four hundredth of the size, which is bizarre. But, uh, um, but yeah, it, it certainly is an overwhelmingly interesting story when, when it does do the right thing. So that will DIO mind you as well. I don't know if it'll. Oh yes, absolutely so. I don't know if it'll work for your OLTP uh, scenarios very well, uh, yeah, but uh, in a data warehouse, it'll definitely un-IO bind you, um, and it'll actually, if you're in batch mode, uh, it'll reduce your CPU time as well. So it's pretty cool technology. Um, the only problem is batch mode doesn't cover uh, kind of a fair. Even in 2014, is not going to cover a fairly large surface area, uh, such as windowing mm-hmm. functions won't be covered in batch mode. Yep. Uh, which is one of the main things that I tested when I was a tech ed and had a couple hours to play. Um, yep. And I found in that case, uh, the normal indexes still worked better. Mm. So. One, of the, one of the things I didn't look at as yet is whether there are any data type restrictions, um, because I'm guessing there would be as well. I believe I read that um, XML, CLR, UDTs, I assume that includes uh, geography, geometry, and uh, yep. hierarchy ID. And uh, lob types aren't supported. Yeah, so that'll be another thing that is uh, that would need to be checked as to whether those sort of data types are are something that you can work with or not as well. Right. Um, I know that uh, certainly in the original Power Pivot and Tabular models, uh, it wasn't only just the data types; it was uh, certain precisions of certain data types as well. So, uh, for example, they didn't support the initially the entire range of decimal, for example. And again, I I don't know if that's changed as yet or not. Yeah, that has actually. Uh, that was that mm-hmm. was uh, or that is the case, I should say, in SQL Server 2012. Uh, yep. And that all those restrictions have been lifted in that's uh, great. 2014. Although I'm using Float most of the time these days, so I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm pretty happy with just taking a little tiny precision hit and saving a lot of space as is with the data type. So mm. not too concerned with decimal these days, but uh, I used to be a, interesting. I used to be a big decimal fan and over yep. time I, I kind of became a float convert. So, ah, now that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, because I must admit I'm still a very decimal fan and mostly cause I like, co- uh, you know, columns of numbers to add up properly and so on. So, <laughs> so, so tell me why, uh, the, uh, the, uh, move to float is it just size well it has to do with the well more than di- just data size actually i found a number of well first of all i found that float wasn't as bad as a lot of people make it out to be mm-hmm. uh, i'm i don't know if i'd use it in an accounting system where everything kind of had to add up to the exact penny every single it, time and that's my point is that nearly every system i work on tends to be accounting ah, and uh, okay. and yeah people with float are the ones with the columns of numbers that don't add up but yeah. even if you have so. float uh I find that most of the rounding errors are maybe six or seven or eight digits after the decimal. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, um, but people just don't do the rounding. <laughs> that, that's the problem. Right. And I mean, and simple then, examples like ten cents can't be represented exactly. So, you you know, you end up in having to sort of round every single thing and and or morph it to a different data type in the other apps. So, so in most of the systems right. I work in, actually, float is a bit scary. What I do see in a lot of the large data warehouses is quite a lot of people using the money data type, um, which again is not one that I typically use. Um, but they're doing that simply because they want the exact value but they don't want the size of decimal i always thought the money was just a wrapper over decimal yeah no there was uh they were saying the uh the storage for that i think if you look it up was actually sort of smaller and so some of the data warehousing guys were recommending using money instead that's interesting um the other issue i found with decimal was that if you get a very high scale well very high precision or very high scale um and you do operations and this is something i just learned about a few years ago the um Let's say you multiply two decimals and they're each uh, precision of nine. The output yep. will have a precision of 18. Yes, indeed. And I was working with a system where we were storing um, very exact exchange rates. And uh, U.S.-Japan exchange rates at some point went down to like a really, really, really uh, large number. It was like point zero 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 something, and um, we were getting a problem where we were doing some conversions and we were winding up with a zero where we should have had a real number. Yeah. And as soon as we switched to float, that problem went away, and it's because of that decimal <laughs> issue. And that's kind of actually it. It reminds me one of my uh, one of the things I love showing people in classes is I have a whole lot of little UI. Uh, things that where things have gone wrong with numeric values, and one of my favorites was a, a competition where they had an Xbox as a prize, uh, and it said you you have zero percent chance of winning, <laughs> and uh, you know obviously they tested it with a small number of people in the in the thing, and it said ten or something, and then once they had more than a couple of hundred people in it, uh, they they had shown the nearest integer, and it was zero. <laughs> okay, I thought they just wrote the UI for me. <laughs> No, it was lovely. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, great competition. Thanks. Yeah, I mean it's true. It's true, but yeah, it's not real appealing. Yeah, so that's good. So and look, um, also you uh, were mentioning the Hecaton story or the uh, in-memory table story, and so your early take on that at this point. Uh, I haven't had a chance to play with it too extensively yet. And I know it's mm-hmm. really for OLTP. For me, um, my biggest interest in it, and my biggest once I get that my hands on that CTP. What I'm going to be doing with it, uh, first and foremost, is seeing whether I can use it to replace TempDB. Uh, yep. One of the, you know, TempDB is minimally logged in most cases, but mm. it's not non-logged. And so the idea of a staging area in a data warehouse being completely non-logged is very interesting to me, uh, being able to kind mm. of completely eliminate that overhead. Uh, so that's my hope for it, uh, but I really don't know if it's going to work or not. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fascinating thought. Yeah, that's good. But so anyway, looks in, back uh, towards parallelism. So, what are the the main things that you've been learning in terms of parallelism? <laughs> well, uh-huh. I actually teach a whole day uh, seminar on this, but uh, yep. <laughs> uh, quick plug there, and in fact, a quick plug, yes, because you are doing that at uh, the SQL Rally events in Europe. A couple of those is it later in the year? Uh, or is that I'm actually, a different session? No, I'm not doing that seminar. I'm doing my other seminar there. Ah, okay. <laughs> on uh, SQL Server Monitoring. But yes, come to the SQL Rally yep. in um, Amsterdam and uh, where's the other one? Stockholm 
in November. Yeah, so people will see you there. That's great. Yeah, that'll be fun. And so anyway, yeah, so um, so maybe the Reader's Digest version of uh, <laughs> what you've been finding with the parallelism. So, yeah, basically you can make your queries uh, many times faster, but the Query Optimizer is not going to do it for you. And as a matter mm. of fact, the Query Optimizer, more often than not, uh, on complex queries at least, if you have simple queries, you're fine. As soon as you get into a little bit of logic, you know, a little um, maybe a little aggregation, a little bit of windowing, you know, you're using row number, or maybe you're using lag and lead, or something like that in uh, SQL Server 2012. As soon as you get into that stuff, uh, the optimizer comes up with some very questionable plans. And if you mm-hmm. just allow the optimizer to manage your parallelism for you without taking control, I discovered uh, you're really doing yourself a, a huge disservice. Uh, as it turns mm-hmm. out, unfortunately, uh, the design of some of the parallelism, which I think I think most of these components were designed actually all the way back in SQL Server 7. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, the design is not the best in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So parallelism is all based around these iterators called exchanges. And if you have a parallel query plan, um, you'll see all these iterators show up in your query plan that are called uh, parallelism. And there's like yep. gather, distribute, and uh, repartition. Mm-hmm. Um, internally, those are actually called exchanges. And the way they work is that uh, basically data flows in uh, to one side of the exchange. And the exchange collects the data into uh, data structures called packets. And then the packets are pushed across the exchange to the other side where threads on the other side, well, one or more threads, depending on the type of the exchange, uh, will pick up the packets and continue processing. Uh, unfortunately, and I don't know the complete internals, having never seen the code of the exchanges, I don't know what they do, but I don't, you know, I don't know where the uh, inefficiency lies. Uh, but yep. uh, unfortunately, these are actually very, very efficient, uh, very, very sorry, inefficient uh, at doing their job. And um, some parallel plans, uh, you know, if you run um, select star from system exec tasks or uh, you know, sys processes. Uh, remember, yep. um, remember back in SQL Server 2000 when we only had sys processes and you'd run it. Yeah. Uh, select star from sys processes where SPID equals 65 and 150 rows would come up. Yep. And what's happening there is that you have 150 tasks uh, allocated to your plan. And it's not because your plan's using 150 active threads, it's because you have uh, basically each exchange iterator in your, in your plan represents a parallel zone and each parallel zone has its own set of threads so you get yep. as many threads as a zone times a degree of parallelism and that's yep. how uh, that's how that math works and each time you have one of those uh, exchange iterators uh, the data has to flow through that iterator into the packet structure then out of the packet structure again and it gets incredibly inefficient and so what I've found is that if you want to improve the performance of parallelism, you have to learn how and why the query optimizer places those exchange iterators and get it to put fewer of them into the plan. Mm-hmm. So that's excellent. <laughs> and so, otherwise, this is basically uh, it sounds to me like you're describing uh, one of the the old discussions about you know the optimal number of threads in any application used to be one uh, but uh, that that 's not very good for concurrency but the otherwise the more of this you start doing, the more time you spend 
pack, uh, switching around between threads and managing threads and so on. The um, is it somehow related to that? Is it you just simply saying the overhead becomes too high? Uh, I think you're referring to context switching. Uh, mm. which is when either the operating system or SQL Server itself. Sure, but I'm just thinking in terms of the same thing, is is there a, a scenario where the degree of management of it starts to overwhelm the benefit from it, that's all? Uh, yeah, I, there probably could be, but that's not really mm. that's not really the key point for me. Yep. Um, I think that when you get to that point, the answer is uh, run fewer queries or buy more CPUs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, okay. Versus this is like if you have an empty system and you run this query, it's going to go four, eight, ten times slower than it should. Yep. Because all because all the data is going in and out of these inefficient data structures. So mm-hmm. it really has nothing to do with thread management and everything to do with um, data flow management. That mm. makes sense. Yep. 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 So, so it is still it is a management overhead though still in what you're somewhat, describing somewhat yeah interesting uh, but what it comes down to is really the uh, I found certain query patterns that you can use uh, that yep. will cause the query optimizer to change the shape of the plan into mm-hmm. uh, something that will perform much much better and it's it's quite yep. interesting these are transformations that the query optimizer could do itself. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't know how, <laughs> so ah. um, which is kind of sad, but be that it is man. interesting. So, what types of things are you having to do in your queries to achieve that? Uh, so, effectively, anytime that you have a a hash or a sort or um, an aggregation, uh, which is kind of grouped globally across the query. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a top. Uh, any of these things uh, can cause the query to either uh, require a, what's called a repartition, where all yep. the rows need to be realigned on whatever threads they're on, uh, mm-hmm. or it can cause a serial zone to become necessary. Um, and any time that those things are necessary, uh, that's when you have kind of this problem. Yeah, so a serial zone being an area of the plan where things have to happen sequentially, you suggest? Uh, well, they have to happen on one thread. So, yeah. Yeah, on a single thread. On yeah. a single thread. Okay. Uh, an example of that would be like top 1,000. So select top 1,000 star from table. Um, now, the yep. query processor can go back to um, the table, back to the index, and it can do a parallel scan. And let's say that you have a DOP of 8. Um, and each thread starts reading rows off the table. Well, the question becomes, which thread has the top 1,000 rows? And the answer is, yep. I don't know. <laughs> so the solution, yes. the only way to solve that problem is to have each thread read um, maybe 1,000 rows, the top 1,000 rows that are on that thread, then put them all together into a collection of 8,000 rows on a single thread and have that single thread take the top 1,000 off the 8,000. Yep. So that's an example of where like a serial zone is needed. Um, and you can think of uh, an aggregation, you know, select some um, units sold from table, same thing. Each thread can start reading, and it can even do something called a partial aggregation, uh, where each thread kind of aggregates whatever data it has and then merges it all together, and then the data is re-aggregated uh, into one final answer. Um, anyway, once you understand why those things occur, you can start writing yep. your plans in such a way that they don't have to occur. Uh, for example, uh, consider 
select product ID, sum units sold from table group by product ID. Yep. So now uh, we have one group per product. And by default, the way that this will be solved by the query optimizer is, uh, well, if you, depending on how many rows you have and indexes and yep. blah, blah, blah. So we'll just kind of uh, pretend. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the default way this can be solved is uh, that the data is going to be read out of the table. And um, the query processor uses this thing in, in parallel plans called parallel scan. And parallel scan reads data a page at a time. And it's fed out to each thread a full page at a time. And depending on your index, uh, each page might have data for, you know, the same product ID or different product IDs. It may be all mixed up across the threads. Yep. Uh, so each thread will take – will have some product IDs. Maybe some products will be spread across different threads and so on. And uh, each thread will start doing this partial aggregation trick. And it will take uh, all the units sold that they have locally and produce, you know, maybe one group per product that each thread has. And then all the threads will have to be merged together and the data kind of resorted. And then uh, maybe some more threads will come along. And each thread now, now that the data has been resorted, will have the partially aggregated versions. And, and maybe the first thread will have uh, all the data for products one, two, and three. And the second thread will have all the data for products four, five, and six, and so on. And that way, everything will come together and you'll get the right answer. Uh, the problem with that is all this sorting and moving of data. And so what I found mm. uh, is a solution to solve this problem is to introduce another operator into the plan, which is an outer reference to, uh, in this case, it would be like the products table itself. Yep. And uh, what I call that is, uh, I call that the driver table. And so you start your query from the products table, and then you uh, make use of the apply operator, mm -hmm. which was added in SQL Server 2005. 2005. Yeah, yep. what apply lets so you do. So we had outer apply and cross apply. Yes, yep. exactly. What apply lets you do is create a correlated uh, table expression. So you select from product, apply, and in your apply, you select from your, let's call it sales table, where sales.productid equals product.productid. Now, logically, mm -hmm. uh, the sales table will be hit once per outer product ID. Yep. Um, now, the query optimizer can actually optimize that into a hash match or a nested loop or a, or a merge, but what we want is a nested loop every time. Yeah. The reason we want that is because on a nested loop, uh, each thread will get one product at a time. It'll take that product. It'll go seek into the inner table. It'll do the work just for that product, and then uh, the data will just have to be merged at the end for output. There doesn't have to yeah, be logic. once it has the totals, yeah. So um, that's kind of how I've been doing this work, and it, it really flies in the face of everything that most books say you should do with regard to query writing. Um, what I'm creating, instead of a single scan, people have been optimizing SQL for years to optimize for single sequential big scans of tables. Yep. This goes completely against that. Instead of optimizing for big scans, I optimize for lots and lots and lots of little seeks. Mm. But it works quite well. And uh, it has a lot of interesting other characteristics uh, when you get into math, uh, the math of query processing, as it were. Uh, for example, sort. Do you know the uh, big O 
kind of uh, time for sort. Mm-hmm. Big O no. notation. So big O is uh, the way that computer scientists describe the scalability of algorithms. Okay. And so big O, um, so you can describe an algorithm's big O, which is kind of its um, uh, its algorithmic kind of scale or in terms of time. Um, mm-hmm. And big O represents basically given a number of elements, which is generally referred to as N, uh, how well would the algorithm scale mathematically? Um, so, for example, a table scan is a big O of N, which means that as you take N and you double it, uh, the algorithm will take twice as long. Yep. And that makes sense because a table scan, if you read 100 rows, it'll take uh, N time. And if you read 200 rows, it'll be N times 2. And if you take 300 rows, it'll be N times 3 and so on. So um, sort, the worst sort algorithms, uh, like bubble sort, take a big O of N squared time. So mm-hmm. if you go from a thousand rows to a million rows, you're now taking a very long coffee break. Uh, yep. The best sort algorithms, which SQL Server uses a couple of, take big O of N times log N, which means that yep. if you go from a thousand rows to a million rows, it's uh, still going to be slower, naturally, but it's not going to be... And it's, it's going, not going to be exponentially, yeah. It's not going slower, to be exponentially yeah, slower, but it is still going to be yep. extra linearly slower. Just yes. Be, uh, so if you go from a thousand to ten thousand, it's actually more than ten times slower. Yeah. So mathematically, if we can reduce our sorts into smaller chunks, rather than doing them in big monolithic pieces, mm-hmm. we can actually take advantage of uh, math and make our sorts faster. And so if you're doing like a lot of windowing functions or things like that where you're doing sorts um, all over your query plan and you break it up using some sort of nested loops like I'm describing, uh, yep. you can actually get much, much faster and reduce your amount of CPU time, reduce your amount of overhead, reduce your amount of tempdb spills uh, due to the fact that big monolithic sorts often won't fit in memory. Yeah, they usually have to spill out to TempDB. Not yeah. if you break them up into a lot of small pieces. Indeed. Now they don't have to spill. So uh, it's really, really interesting once you get into this technique, um, how well it works and how you can really mm-hmm. start optimizing queries in ways that were just impossible before. Fascinating. Listen, it does lead me to sort of wonder, do you, do you almost think that the engine itself should have uh, two basic tunings for optimization and uh, for particular types of servers you'd be able to say look I, I want to use this style of you know big sort of big level controls in terms of you know optimize for this type of work or optimize for this type of work or or do you think that really most uh, many systems end up doing both or uh, uh, I think that in general there are never enough knobs <laughs> Yep. so give me more knobs and I'd be very happy man uh, yeah. That said, if there's too many knobs, I wouldn't have a job because <laughs> yeah, someone indeed. needs to someone needs to tune those queries. But in general, though, seriously, um, I, I think SQL Server. Again, we'll see how the cluster comp store does, and you know some of these yep. kind of things that are coming. But in general, I think it's I think they have not paid enough attention in the past several releases to query optimization and kind of keeping it up to date with the latest advances in technology. Uh, I mean, we have a lot more cores than we had, yeah. even in SQL Server 2005, 
um, you know, that wasn't too long ago, right? Uh, yeah, probably eight years now, but um, that's not really a long time. And if you mm. think about that time frame, uh, I think I was working uh, around the time that came out. Uh, I was working with a company, and we had uh, 32, or 16 or 32 cores or something like that. And that was considered to be a really big server. Oh, yeah. that In fact, uh, I think some of the larger Megadome systems I saw at the time were, yeah, 32 64-bit processors and I think 2 terabytes of memory at the time. 2 terabytes? But, uh, that was the absolute top end of those, that was, yeah. That was gigantic. That would have been like a million dollars then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's uh, incredibly high end. But, I mean, that was that was like the absolute top end of anything you could pretty much buy at the time. Yeah, okay. So that's not even realistic. I think the, no. the vast majority of people were running on eight cores. Uh, oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, mo- again, most sites are going to probably four, even in uh, 2005. So right, and now and now you get four or eight cores on a single chip in your desktop machine. I mean, yeah. My desktop machine that I'm sitting at right now is 24. I mean, that's ridiculous <laughs> if you think. Yeah. Of it. But the point is, uh, SQL Server itself, the query optimizer, uh, hasn't changed its logic in any way to take advantage of. Uh, all these new cores, the memory that I was talking about earlier being cheaper, the um, disk systems being faster. Yeah, nothing has changed in the query optimizer. It actually still uses the same constants. Uh, so the way the query yeah. optimizer works is um, everything's cost based, of course, and yeah. uh, that, those costs are all based on constants, and uh, it's basically some constant times estimated number of rows times estimated row size uh, based on which operation is kind of taking place. Uh, mm. You know, you know. So a scan has certain constants, and a seek has certain constants, and and so on. And those constants haven't really changed since SQL Server Seven. Uh, yeah. So that's like, you know, SQL Server Seven was probably being developed in ninety six, ninety seven, because it was released in yep. ninety eight. So that's, that's exactly the time frame. Yep. So if you think about it, we're like seventeen years of the same exact constants the same exact math being used to do query optimization it's getting a little bit long in the tooth as well as community resources such as this podcast sql down under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options if you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start why not give us a call we have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Actually, one of the other fundamental design things is also that the, the storage engine seems to have always had a clean separation from the query optimization engine, but that also means that when query optimization is being performed, it doesn't understand, for example, whether data is compressed or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is true with the... That is true with the compression that's available as of uh, you know SQL Server two thousand eight two thousand eight uh, yeah but that's not true anymore really with the with the column store with the column store yeah column store is a different story but yeah I just think it's all it's it's another challenge is that if some of those fundamental changes uh, could potentially occur and just I think as a design if you've got one thing layered above the other it's just you just sort of wonder how much knowledge you have to have leaking between the two uh, to be 
to you know is that separation still even sensible right right now have you uh, gotten a lot of good luck with decompression in general in, in your projects oh compression yeah in fact it's uh, i i think if i think back to 2008 i thought the two best things in the box were compression uh, and spatial I'd, I'd say almost without question the um and number one compression by a long way i uh, whenever i'm talking to clients they they always seem to start with this assumption that Compression means smaller and slower, but I mean it's just so not the case. The uh, uh, given the fact they sort of change the row format and potentially the, the page format, the uh, the idea that because again a lot of the sites I'm working with tend to to be I/O bound, something that cuts that to a half or a third is huge. Um, but even not just that, the fact that uh, the the page formats change, it means that the same buffers now fit two or three times as many rows in memory. Uh, and the argument used to be that, oh, well, it was you know a few percent uh, CPU per page. But again, the thing we found in practicality is that the number of pages has also gone down to a half or a third of the number of pages. So, in fact, what we're seeing in larger ones is just the the CPU actually drops as well. So, uh, so given the fact that you know look, the whole thing's smaller, it, it sh- cuts the I/O down. Uh, the buffers fit two or three times as many rows, and in many cases, the CPU go down as well. I mean, I, to me, that's just a no-brainer. Yeah, that's what I've seen in some cases. I've actually seen the reverse happen as well. So mm, interesting. Um, in which sort of areas? Uh, well, you know, data warehouses primarily uh, that aren't yeah. that aren't I/O bound. Um, mm-hmm. I actually found that a lot of the queries. So we were getting, uh, you know, it, it works actually pretty well. I've gotten up to 70% compression ratios uh, yep. before, especially on, on fact tables where uh, there's lots and lots of repetition. Um, Are you predominantly using row or, pa- um, or page compression? Uh, this is with page compression that I'm referring to those big keys. Yeah, I was going to say the thing I've found in general is I haven't found a system yet that hasn't benefited from row compression. I have got some tables at some sites where, yeah, page compression, that's a different story. Right. So the page compression obviously gives you much better compression ratios. Yep. Uh, but in that case, um, I saw several cases where we weren't I.O. bound, and yep. the queries ended up being twice as slow. So yeah. you do get a considerable amount of CPU overhead. Um, I agree with you, though, on the page compression, especially if you have the right data types to really mm. make it worthwhile. Um, I, I think that the fact that it works on uh, NVARCAR and kind yep. of compresses it down to the UCF-8, um, I think that's really cool. Yeah. So. Um, no, indeed. So, But look, overall, um, I find most of the sites I go in and – uh, we enable that. the The reaction they have is like, "Wow, wow why didn't we do that before?" You know, I mean, that, right. that's almost invariably the reaction. Um, the other thing that people don't get is that when it's enabled, too. I mean, it doesn't do anything immediately. It's only when it thinks it's going to avoid page splits that it goes off and compresses the page. So they do need to do something to cause it to rewrite all the data in the table uh, to to really have any effect. Um, And then, of course, a lot of people had heaps, and so there was no option to rebuild until 2008 where you got the alter table with rebuild at the same time. Right, right. Uh, don't you have to rebuild the index, though, to enable it? Yeah, 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 you do. That's the thing, is that you need to do something that rewrites all the data so that it, it goes back and reassesses all of those pages. So mm. rebuilding the indexes, you absolutely had to do. But prior to 2008, there wasn't a way to rebuild a table. Ah, um, yes. 
And so, and uh, what I used to see some people do is they'd go and add a clustered index to the to it and then drop it again. I mean, that was one of the things they do, which is, is not necessarily a great idea. But one of the other reasons they wanted to do that was to remove forwarding pointers out of the table. Um, and so it, often if you have heaps that have been obviously in use for some time and there's lots of update operations going on, you invent in, in, always end up with a whole bunch of forwarding pointers eventually. Um, and at least, again, alter table with rebuild removes all of those as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, I haven't uh, seen too many heaps in the real world, so uh, yeah. you seem to be hitting some interesting projects. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, it's just a, it's a pretty wide variety of things. We tend Although to I, I am working with a vendor system right now that um, what they've done is created a non-clustered primary key on every single table. Yep, I and see that all the time, actually. That's it. And, yeah, it, it's, it's a very common one I see. Yep. Really? So w- yep. what do you think that comes from? Uh, sometimes it's simply the libraries that they're using uh, the, to generate that. Um, other times it'll be something like it's a GUID primary key and they're wanting to keep that off separate somewhere else. But uh, um, even there, though, um, I... And, and again, the, the argument being that it's much quicker to rebuild the index that just has the GUID and some other identifier than it is to rebuild the entire thing. Yeah, but who cares how quick it is to rebuild the index when every single query is either a scan or has RID lookups? Yeah, 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 and, indeed. It's, it's, it's very much the case. But the, the other thing that I find... Um, uh, a lot of the sites where they've got that, they end up with tables that are messes in terms of the GUIDs. But what I find is a lot of the time people still have this idea their logical and physical data models have to be the same. And my, my personal preference on a lot of those is I end up with a single separate table that maps the, the GUIDs to ints and lit- literally everything else is just joined and, and done via ints instead. To that one table, um, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's often the... Well, it may, it may be the one, it may be not, but the thing is that becomes a very small thing to, to look after and maintain. Um, but the idea that the ID externally has to be the same ID internally is just something I, I don't necessarily buy into um, if you have some layer of abstraction in the database. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, mm. I don't know. I think people maybe concentrate a little too much on the whole GUID thing, but... Uh... <laughs> and again, that's it's a changing story as as time goes on. Yeah, so. I mean, for me personally, in cases where I've seen a lot of goods actually used, uh, it, they were those that was in the past in more OLTP style applications. Yep. And in those cases, a lot of times fragmentation doesn't re- it doesn't matter a tremendous amount. It matters somewhat, but it doesn't really matter a tremendous amount. Uh, yeah, it's, oh, well, I suppose it depends on the sort of thing, right? If um if you're talking about like a site I was at yesterday, I mean the the tables averaged uh, like the internal fragmentation was fifty percent. Mm-hmm. I mean that means you are reading twice as many pages to get the same amount of data. Yeah, but if you're only reading one or two pages per query, as you are in sure, most OLTP systems. Yeah. Well, yeah, it depends on what they're doing with the system. Yeah. In fact, it's one of the things I often look at. Um, the things like the index maintenance stuff that uh, at least the sort of things that Ola Hallengren has in place are better mm. than the ones in the box. But one of the things that none of these things ever look at is how the table is actually used or the index is used. And so, um, what I, you know, I look at a lot of these things, and if all, as you say, all you're ever doing is uh, particular seeks or something on an index, then you know, almost who cares? Yeah. Right. Right. So, I think uh, it's it's always interesting because I go. I, Talk to a lot of DBAs who uh, the first thing they do when things slow down is they go and start defragmenting everything. 
yep. and very rarely does it make much of a difference. Although sometimes it actually does make a difference because it brings the pages into the buffer cache. Yes. So they rerun the query. And, and it, they th- yeah, they think think it's made a big and difference. And they just yeah. it just blows through. It's always kind of uh, yep. fun to do that. So uh, I always uh, no, remind them DBCC drop clean buffers. Yep. So. <laughs> or any of those, yeah, when you're doing a lot of testing, yeah, free proc cache uh, some of these things until they start getting plans in place. And yeah, no. But uh, recently I've actually gone, gotten to the point, again, I'm working with fairly large systems with a, a lot of memory, and um, I've gotten to the point where realistically the working set is always in the buffer cache. This is another one of these things that's kind of changing. Um, yeah. When I first started, I would never test anything without dropping the buffer cache. Yep. Um, and you know, I, I want to test everything against a cold read and I would assume that everything was going to be a cold read. And now mm. that's shifting, uh, at least for me to where I'm now, um, testing everything as a warm read. And that's really, yeah. I, and my assumption is now that the cold read will be much less frequent. And again, it's due to the fact that we have a lot of memory. We have a lot of sand cache yep. and the cold reads just not as, it's still bad, but it doesn't really matters much no no agreed it's uh, as as that amount of memory has, is increasing that's right it completely changes the type of thing you're trying to optimize for so that's uh getting back to 2014 i think mm. you no know, i think that that i'm going to call it flash cache at the risk of completely confusing anyone uh yep. who might look at it but but that flash cache style uh thing is really going to uh change the way i think a lot of people do query today yeah well, it's interesting. I know the uh, – well, again, I think one of the common things that probably look – obviously, it'll be local SSDs, but more likely probably uh, local uh, Fusion I.O. boards or OCZ boards, you know, the boards that are sitting in the in the server itself, but just using that as an extension of the cache. Right. Or violin memory. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, violin memory, yes. Another one again, yeah. So the um, what I, I noticed with most of those boards too is that uh, from what I gather in most cases, the bus is actually the uh, the bottleneck in the case of most of those. So I, I know they're certainly experimenting with versions where basically they take power off the, the motherboard, but uh, basically the boards then plug into memory sockets instead. And I think it's going to be very interesting when you get that style of uh, memory uh, sort of masquerading as as real memory in the system in a way. I, I think that because they just give you large amounts of something that is slightly slower but persistent memory. Uh, again, that'll lead to a different style of optimization and, and possible outcomes. But there's a lot of new memory technologies kind of just over the horizon. Well, I mean, supposedly, yeah. supposedly this magnetic RAM is going to come someday, right? Mm. I don't know if you've read about that much. Um, yeah, a few. And, and there was a thing locally just about that again the other day. But so. they've been talking about that for 10 years now. And, yes. And <laughs> uh, kind of still waiting on that. But eventually one of these kind of persistent RAM technologies is going to come along. And I think assuming that it's cost effective, it'll completely change everything. Like we won't even yes. have to have the, this discussion will not even make sense anymore. Yes, um, exactly. So that'll that'll be interesting when that, when that day comes. Um, no, all good. In fact, uh, w- what's your overall thought then about just SQL uh, being philosophical just as a whole in terms of direction? SQL or SQL Server, first of all? Uh, I, I suppose <laughs> both. Uh, let's let's hear your thoughts on both. Um, so, I don't know. I, I laugh a lot. Um, and the reason I said that 
SQL or SQL Server is I've been really kind of laughing at these uh, no SQL products. Uh, yep. You know these these products all came out with big flourish. Um, you know, about four or five years now, I guess it's been uh, maybe even three years that they've really been in the mainstream. And mm. uh, we're gonna do away with this terrible SQL thing, and we're gonna introduce this new methodology. You know, Java based way of doing everything. And lo and behold, you look now, and almost every single one of these products is adding an SQL layer. Yep. And it's like someone learned somewhere. <laughs> yeah. SQL is a language. Mm. And it's pretty decent language for what it is. Um, you know, it retrieving data, it's, it retrieves it in a nice declarative manner and does, and a lot of people know it. A lot of people are pretty good with it. Yeah. Um, business users can use it pretty easily. Uh, business users can't go code some complex Java thing very easily. So mm-hmm. uh, looking at all these NoSQL products and thinking about uh, does SQL have a future? I definitely think it does. Um, I don't think it's going to go away. Any, I think I'll probably spend the rest of my career working with some form of SQL or you know maybe maybe it won't be in SQL Server. Um, yeah. <laughs> getting into SQL Server side of things, uh, you know, as I said, the optimizer is getting a little long in the tooth, and I think there's a lot of external competition. Uh, coming from, you know, these NoSQL products as well as yep. other uh, private. Pro- I, I think that the age of the monolithic DBMS is slowly coming to an end. I, I don't think it's yeah. you know it's not next year, it's not five years from now, but uh, mm. it's definitely decreasing, and it just doesn't make sense anymore to pay huge, huge, huge upfront license fees when there's really fantastic free products available. Or yeah. maybe they're not even free, but they're pretty close to free, and you can you know pay a little bit for support. On top of mm-hmm. that, to these all you know all of these companies have uh, consulting arms. Uh, so I'm I'm worried, <laughs> um, yeah. cautiously worried. I'll say. Uh, I think that actually one of the the things for me uh, that is a big indicator on that is <laughs> around developer productivity and. Uh, I, I think one of the things that's really important is that they keep the development community thinking that this is an efficient way to build things. And uh, again, one of the challenges with a lot of the other things is that they are getting quite high levels of productivity. And uh, one of the things that, uh, I, again, if I look at 2014, one of the things to me that is missing uh, is a developer productivity story. I mean, I, I'm not seeing... You know, like uh, there are wonderful things going in there, but I'm I'm not actually seeing things that go, you know, here's how I could write T-SQL a whole lot better. Well, they gave us this thing called SSDT a while yep. ago. Um, I think I know four people who like it. Uh, maybe you're yep. maybe you're one of them. I, I don't know. No, I'm I'm um, I'm if you yes. Well, again, they confuse the naming. So SQL Server Data Tools is used for both the BI templates uh, in in uh, working inside Visual Studio. Those I'm actually quite comfortable with, although uh, I don't overly love the 2012 ones uh, because they've basically removed all color from everything. Ah. And uh, the so, for example, in integration services, the difference between a task that's enabled and disabled is how dark the name of the task is. Um, you know, thing, things like that. I, uh, I I I struggle with that as a as a color scheme and so on. A, a lot of those things are problematic. Um, but yeah, the 
also when you're talking about, yeah, the things for building objects uh, or for building databases that live in Visual Studio, yeah, I I so struggle with that. In fact, the uh, probably the biggest example is that I still, and, and I'd love to know if you know how, but I still don't know how to go in and just build a project where I just build an assembly and, and spit an assembly out the back end like I used to be able to do quite easily. Uh, no, actually, I'm still doing my SQL CLR development, and actually, I, I'm do a lot of very heavy SQL CLR development. Uh, I do it in Visual Studio 2010, which uh, if you connect it up to SQL Server 2012, we'll throw an exception and yep. say you're not allowed to do this. Uh, so the workaround I found uh, for this, and I, I do do it, <laughs> um, yeah. is um, what you do is you keep a local – this sucks, but it works. You keep a local SQL Server 2008 instance. You point it at that. And then you go in, and if you find the uh, MS build manifest file yep. for, uh, that it uses internally, uh, there's a line that you can take out, which is the line that actually deploys the code to the database. And if you mm-hmm. take that out, it'll still run. and It'll actually produce a script for you. And then you just take the script and run it on your 2012 instance. And that's uh, – so it's kind of two steps to do the deployment, and it's a terrible pain, but that's how I've been doing – my work for the last yeah it's just it just <laughs> intrigues me is that in as you say in visual studio 2008 i could start a project um create some objects build an assembly i could deploy from that if i want quite easily or not but but just for someone working at how to even do those projects at all now in in the new environment i i, I don't find it a clean experience at all um and uh, in fact one of the things i'd love to uh, find is who's the best person to talk about that nowadays and i'd love to see them do a sort of a session on hey this is what we actually have in mind um because i i, I keep thinking i must actually be missing something so well i mean as far as i know most of the people are no longer working on that team in microsoft at indeed all. so it's like pretty strange <laughs> yeah so. So anyway, yeah. So that that particular area, I think, is is problematic. The um, I do, as I said, uh, the other use of the name SQL Server Data Tools. I do appreciate uh, the fact that they've, uh, when they didn't take a dependency on Visual Studio 2012, that they have now at least shipped the templates for uh, for integration services, reporting services, and analysis services to work in against uh, Visual Studio 2012. Uh, that. Uh, even if I don't like how they look, um, just having them available in that environment is a huge step forward. Right. Well, I guess it's the little things, except for the hipster, yeah. um, the hipster design methodology that they're using is a little bit annoying, isn't it? That's that grayscale. Yeah, That's what I call it. Yeah, well, uh, the whole thing is, yeah, it's grayscale, and all the menus are capitalized, everything, and so on. It. it uh... I, you know, I'm just I'm just not so sure. I mean, I I look at I, I get the design, I see what they're trying to do there, but I still look and go. I mean, color to me, color is just one of the senses that you can, and to me, it just removes a whole lot of potential information when you remove all the color out of things. I guess everything kind of is cyclical and will eventually come back. Um, yeah. You know, we we really just needed to return to the 1940s. To, you know. um, so I don't know. It's very odd. color everywhere. Yeah, actually, um, on a on a side note, I did get to see the Great Gatsby uh, on the weekend and uh, the Baz Luhrmann film. I I didn't know if I would like that because I'm not a huge Baz Luhrmann fan, but certainly uh, I did actually enjoy it. And 
is uh, just interesting. Yes, in terms of the degree of colour, uh, certainly almost over the top, but uh, it's great. Yeah. Did you get to see that at all? Uh, no, no, it's definitely on my list. I heard that it's really yeah. you know, over the top and very celebratory. Of yeah, that's the... that was that was the uh, reviews that I kept hearing is that it was like way over the top and things like that. But and so I was really expecting the worst. But uh, I I have to say I actually really quite enjoyed it. So uh, excellent. And uh, it it did take me back to reading that as a as a child. Yeah. So anyway. I, I have a it's all good. ten month old, uh, so I don't get out to the theater too much these days. Ah, uh, indeed. Hey, so listen, uh, now that we're coming up to time, though, where will people see you? So we started to mention before sequel rally. So where will people come across you in the upcoming times? Uh, that's really it. Actually, I don't have anything scheduled uh, except mm-hmm. for sequel rally, and um, it's summertime here, or it's yep, just kind of starting. So I'm just kind of hoping to have a long, quiet summer. Uh, right. do some work. I have a couple projects that I can't announce yet. Yep. <laughs> so um, watch this space or watch uh, sequelblog.com and I will yep. uh, hopefully late in the year have some very interesting things to share, but right now I can't tell you what they are. So. Ah, that's great. <laughs> and in fact, we should mention that uh, in particular that uh, Adam and Peter DeBetta host uh, sequelblog.com or created that in the first place and uh, for people looking at just a generic feed for a whole lot of SQL Server-related information, uh, my own blog and many, many other people are up uh, on SQLblog.com, which I'll put a link to in the notes as well. Excellent. Thanks so much. So great. So listen, thank you so very much, Adam, and we will talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Top.